Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest Democracy Watch newsletter, Keaton explained why Oklahoma lawmakers are backing congressional term limits and what a possible path forward might look like. Uh, Keaton, now the Oklahoma legislature can't impose term limits on the state's congressional delegation by itself, right? That's correct. There was actually a a Supreme Court ruling in 1996, uh, U.S. term limits versus Thornton, that where the Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 decision that states don't have that right uh, to impose their own term limits on uh, their their U.S. representatives and U.S. senators. uh, So they don't have that right. So uh, what did they do to indicate that they support term limits at the federal level? So they passed a joint resolution in the state house and senate uh, that now goes up to Congress, uh, kind of dormant until some other things uh, ha- were to happen. Um, but for now, it's just basically uh, an indication that they would like this these term limits to be imposed, uh, kind of a formal letter or um, opinion of of the legislature, the legislators. What would be required for congressional term limits uh, to be taken up uh, so, nationally? Yeah, it's it's somewhat complicated. Um, so Congress could initiate it and then put it toward to the state legislators, the legislatures to decide across all 50 states. Um, the other option is for if you get two thirds of states to pass this kind of resolution that Oklahoma has passed, uh, they can get together in a convention and and put it forward back to the states again. And then 38 of them would have to sign off on uh, these these term limits. So it's kind of a complex process, um, but ultimately you have to have a supermajority of the states or Congress on board to even get it, the, the motion and forward. Now, is there any likelihood that happens anytime soon? It doesn't appear very likely. Uh, Oklahoma is one of six states, I believe, at this point that has passed Uh, a resolution with uh, one item, that being the congressional term limits. Um, So it's a long way off um, and doesn't appear very likely uh, in the near future, um, but certainly something to to watch over the next several years, perhaps. Well, I imagine that the uh, arguments for and against are much uh, the same as they were at the state level, but what are what are people saying now about why this would be a good idea uh, in Congress? So a lot of the the messaging uh, from folks who are in favor of this uh, is along the lines of, you know, you'll get rid of those uh, so-called career politicians. Um, you'll get more fresh blood in there and, um, you know, we'll we'll get people who uh, have been serving in the private sector or working in the private sector, um, that sort of thing. Um, I guess the idea that if you, the longer you're there, the li- the likelihood that you'll be corrupted is higher uh, is is kind of the argument of the, the folks who are in favor of this. And how about those who are opposed? 
So those who are opposed say it it might actually increase uh, how reliant uh, people in Congress are on on lobbyists, special interests, um, saying that the longer you're there, uh, the more you learn and and you can kind of navigate policy more easily uh, is is one of the main arguments there. Well, um, you know, one of the long term arguments, I'm sure this is coming up somewhere, is that. Uh, we've always had term limits, right? The Senate serving six years was intended to be the professional politicians, if you will, right? And the representatives with two-year terms were meant to go for a short time and then come come back to their lives as uh, farmers or bankers or whatever they did. Uh, and that the vote is the term limit, right? That uh, we, we can always vote for someone new when the term expires. Um, how, what are you, what are you hearing on that front? I mean, that's one of the oldest arguments against term limits we've heard. Is that surfacing now? Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of that has come up. The other thing, uh, that I've, I've seen is just the, you know, as, as you're an incumbent, um, you build up your, your funds, you build up your name recognition, um, and for someone new to come in just with, you know, the, even, the past decade or two, the the amount of money that's come into politics, it's really more difficult to take down an incumbent. And that's maybe something that's that's changed from earlier times. Um, so that might be some, you know, another argument um, for the folks who are in favor of enacting these term limits. Now, back in 1990, more than three decades ago, Oklahoma voters had a chance to weigh in on term limits for state lawmakers. Uh, remind us the outcome. That was a landslide. Uh, About 75% of voters voted yes on that uh, question. And since then, we've had a 12-year term, or you can serve a a maximum of of 12 years uh, unless you came in on a special election, then you might get an extra year. Um, But that's that's in the State House and Senate now. Has there been any kind of, you know, formal study or analysis on how term limits uh, affect how long uh, Oklahoma legislators actually serve? I I wasn't able to find anything, uh, you know, in the past couple of years. I know going back to 2014, the Oklahoma Policy Institute uh, did did an analysis on it, and uh, at that point, they they seemed to find that lawmakers were maybe staying a little bit longer than they did before the term limits were enacted. Maybe the the thinking being that. You know, if I only get 12 years, I'm, I'm going to stay as long as I can, as opposed to, you know, before maybe you you go in, maybe take a break and then know that you can come back later as a possibility. Um, but, yeah, it would be be interesting to follow up on that a little bit later. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, all of Keaton's coverage on the Democracy Beat and sign up for his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch, at our website, OklahomaWatch.org. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. He's been looking into uh, House Bill 2109, a proposed law meant to protect renters from retaliation at the hands of their landlords. He's here today to tell us what he found. Lionel, who proposed the bill and what are they hoping to accomplish? The bill was proposed in the House by Representative Daniel Pay, and it's being carried through the Senate right now by Senator John Michael Montgomery. And they're both Republicans from Lawton. 
the goal of it is to bring balance to the Landlord-Tenant Act, is what they've said, uh, by providing more protections for renters from retaliatory rent hikes, reduced services, threats of eviction, uh, after they make complaints about unsafe living conditions in their unit. And what does the data tell us about uh, the number of evictions? There are a few numbers that stand out to me. Uh, the first is, you know, since January 1st of 2020, so like right before the pandemic really popped off in Oklahoma, uh, till now, there have been more than 110,000 evictions filed in Oklahoma. Uh, two-thirds of those, about 72,000, were filed in Oklahoma and Tulsa counties. Now, there are two studies that are important to help contextualize those numbers. Uh, the first is one out of the Terry West Legal Clinic from uh, Tulsa University's College of Law. And they found in a study of Tulsa's eviction courts that 97% of evictions in Tulsa in January 2020 were rent-based because people were behind on rent or refused to pay. Um, the Oklahoma Access to Justice Foundation analyzed courts in eight counties in Oklahoma, and they found in their analysis that 89% of evictions were filed by corporate landlords, uh, people, some most of whom don't even live in Oklahoma. Um, and 51% of those landlords had lawyers. Meanwhile, 4% of the tenants had representation. And, and these numbers kind of help us see the imbalance of the current eviction process in Oklahoma. So... Uh, what kind of protections would be offered by 2109? It will allow renters to make their case as to why they failed or didn't pay rent. Uh, often what happens is a tenant will notify a landlord of something like a leaky ceiling, a broken AC, pest infestation, mold, and it goes ignored only for rent to rise the next month or the landlord to say something like, hey, you know, you have the choice of moving out so you can just do that or I can evict you. Um you know, that might put someone behind on rent and, and that gives a landlord the power to evict really a lot of times without any questions asked to them by a judge. Um, this will allow people to sue if they can prove, if they can prove retaliation and even recover damages and attorney's fees if, if House Bill 2109 passes. So what are the bill's limitations? Yeah, so it only applies to landlords with 10 or more units. And that's meant to crack down really on those out-of-state large apartment complex investors uh, and protect, you know, people who own maybe a few rental homes and, and aren't really in the big business of evicting people. Uh, the thing about that, and that's been brought up to me by some attorneys, is that some people will own, you know, three houses under one LLC, two houses under the next, three houses under the other. And so they end up owning more than 10 properties, but the liability is spread out. And so those people uh, have, have been told might be able to slip through some of the cracks in the language. Um, in addition to that, <laughs> there's a, a list of situations in which an action by a landlord can't be considered retaliation. And the main item on that list is that an eviction isn't retaliatory if a person is behind on rent. Well, in the eyes of the attorneys I've been talking to, that really negates the spirit of the law. Um, they said that it will have to see, they will have to see how it plays out in court ultimately. All right. You've talked to some tenants. What do they think? Yeah. So I spent some time uh, in the Oklahoma County Courthouse. And to be honest, most people have no idea the bill is even being proposed. Um, I think it's uh, pretty safe to say that most people who are being evicted are not thinking about what's going on in the legislature in real time. Um, they find it a good idea once I explained it to them. What about landlords? That's a different story. Uh, I've honestly heard mixed thoughts about the bill. Uh, people are worried that they will be caught up in a trap 
meant for large investors, large, you know, large landlords. And those people are local landlords that own, in their minds, a very small amount of houses. Um, one landlord I spoke to said that he and others, uh, if this bill passes, would just raise their standards for who they let in their houses. Higher credit score requirements, uh, making sure that people have clean criminal re uh, records, and in, in their words, no quote-unquote second chances for people with spotty histories. So uh, there's uh, legislative deadlines this week. Where is this bill in the process and what happens next? The bill passed Senate Business and Commerce Committee two weeks ago and passed by a six to five vote there. Uh, the next step is a Senate floor discussion. Uh, do you know if the bill's been scheduled yet this week? You know, I've been checking and it wasn't on yesterday's schedule. It wasn't on today's schedule. The deadline for this is on Thursday. And so if it doesn't get heard on the floor this week, then it will have to roll over to, to next session. Right. What, what's the scuttlebutt? Is it likely to pass? It, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, there, there are some concerns from Republican legislators really about tying up people, you know, these, these small time landlords, if, if you want to call them that, um, in costly litigation. Um, there's concerns about, you know, who's going to support it as far as the, the larger landlords go. It's got more support than any bills that, that has been proposed to, you know, alter the Landlord-Tenant Act in a while. So, so it's hard to say. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read all of Lionel's coverage of House Bill 2109 and his other work related to race and equity at our website, oklahomawatch.org. Oklahoma Watch reporters Whitney Bryan and Ashlyn Huffman have been covering how Oklahomans experiencing mental health crises often end up in prisons or jails instead of treatment centers. Uh, Whitney recently obtained a copy of the state's investigation into Ronald Given, who died at the hands of Pottawatomie County jailers in 2019. And she's here to talk about what those documents revealed about his death and others like him. Uh, Whitney, remind us first, who was Ronald Given and why is his particular story so important? Well, Ronald Given was a member of the Kiowa tribe and he was 43 when he was arrested by Shawnee police in 2019. He was wreaking havoc in a tractor supply store and he told employees there that someone was trying to kill him. So police initially took him to the hospital after they showed up. All the state's mental health beds were full, though, so they waited for one to free up. And while they were at the hospital waiting, Given pushed one of the officers, and that's when they arrested him and took him to jail. A few hours later, he died during a struggle with jailers. And this type of story is actually pretty common for Oklahomans who struggle with mental illness. They end up dying at the hands of law enforcement or in jails and prisons because they didn't receive the help that they needed. All right. Now, you've reported on similar circumstances. Uh, what's been your experience in cases like this? Well, this reporting has been really repetitive and, you know, it's really heartbreaking as well. These situations are happening all across the state. So I've been covering the deaths of Shannon Hanchett and Catherine Milano, who died waiting on mental health evaluations in the Cleveland County Jail late last year. 
Daniel Hobbs was shot and killed after telling an Oklahoma City police officer that he had schizophrenia. Benny Edwards was in crisis when Oklahoma City police shot and killed him in 2020. I've written about a great-grandmother in Tulsa who was threatened with a taser and then tackled by police during a bipolar episode. And, of course, there's a 17-year-old Isaiah Lewis. He was shot by Edmond police after running naked through a suburban neighborhood and breaking into a home. And, you know, that list goes on and on. Now, you recently got a copy of the OSBI investigation into uh, Ronald Givens' death. Tell us what you found in that report. Well, that report is about 300 pages long, and it starts with sort of a brief summary of what happened, and that summary is only a couple of paragraphs. It's very sanitized. Um, The medical examiner's report is in there, and so is the arrest report from Shawnee Police. It includes medical records, photos, names and ranks of detention officers, written accounts of what happened to Ronald Given that jailers wrote the night he died and interviews with EMTs and jail staff. Does it tell us what killed Ronald Given? Well, that's the tricky question I think that everyone's trying to answer at this point. I learned a lot of new details about what happened to Given at the jail, but it's still unclear exactly what led to his death. So we learned that jailers put Given into a cell with another inmate, even though he was paranoid and erratic and experiencing some mental health um, struggles at that point. But within minutes of that, he ended up attacking the other inmate who fought back and and you know, they got into a a pretty difficult altercation. Um, In his interview with investigators, the other inmate said that Given should have never been in the jail because he was clearly dealing with some mental health issues. The medical examiner ruled the cause of death was an altercation with jailers uh, and not the other inmate, right? Did we learn anything new about that? Yeah, that's right. So after they moved him to his own cell after that altercation, Given started yelling and stripped off his clothes. And that's when detention officers came in, um, they say, to try to restrain him and move him to a different cell. That's when the altercation uh, with jailers occurred. More than once, jailers slammed him onto the concrete floor. And some of them told investigators that was intentional, that they sort of, you know, leg swept him in order to take him down and get control of him on the ground. Others, though, said that he just fell or tripped. So a lot of discrepancies in these reports. The most surprising thing to me, though, was that one of the jailers reported that Given was tased several times. Uh, Five jailers told investigators about a sergeant who brought in a taser and pushed it against Given's back while he was face down on the ground, that they were threatening to tase him if he didn't cooperate. Four of those jailers said he was never tased, but one of them says he was multiple times. Now, Ronald Given died uh, four years ago, right? Back in 2019. Why are we just now finding out about all these details? Well, because jail officials and the former district attorney didn't want us to know the details. So in Pottawatomie County, um, these officials spent years covering up the details of his death. They withheld jail video and incident reports from the public despite numerous requests from media outlets and others for those public records of what happened. In January, we got the video footage after an appellate court forced its release 
uh, incident reports from the jail followed. And then after that, we got the findings from the OSBI investigation. Well, it's been four years. Uh, certainly the district attorney in Pottawatomie County has had the video available uh, throughout that four years, has also had the OSBI conclusions in their report for a while. Why has no one been prosecuted in this death? Well, the district attorney who was there when all of this happened in 2019, uh, Alan Grubb, he declined to file charges after the State Bureau of Investigation sent him these findings that we've seen. He claimed at the time that they recommended no charges be filed, but I actually spoke with a representative at the Bureau, and he said investigators don't make recommendations to DAs. That's not something that they do. It's ultimately up to the district attorneys to determine if charges are necessary and what charges should be filed based on the evidence that they uncovered in the investigation. Um, the OSBI ended up closing that case in 2019 after Alan Grubb declined to file charges and said that they have not been asked to reopen or relook into that case despite the former DA's promises that he would do that. Uh, Grubb, the former DA, he resigned in 2022 after a grand jury accused him of corruption. And the new DA, Adam Panter, he's been in office since October. He told us he didn't know about the case until the video was released in late January. And since then, he's been looking into it, but he's unsure whether or not he'll prosecute. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. Uh, you can read all of Whitney and Ashland's coverage of Ronald Givens' death, as well as uh, the cases uh, Whitney has reported on with similar circumstances. You'll find all of it on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.